Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, the president of Chatham University and your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast. I'm here today with uh, two colleagues, Brian Grigsby, who is the president of Moravian College and the Moravian Seminary and the Lancaster Theological Seminary, and David Rowe, who served as the interim president of Lancaster Theological Seminary, um, as well as having served as the president of Centenary College and now runs uh, the Windermere Group uh, consulting firm. Uh, David, Brian, it's great to have you both on the podcast. Great to be with you, David. Yeah, likewise. Um, could we start off, Brian, maybe you could share just a little about your own educational journey, where you grew up, where you went to school? So I grew up in New York, uh, just around West Point area. Uh, and I went to college at Moravian. I, I came here to study soccer uh, and was one of those uh, individuals that quite didn't know why they were going to college, but wanted a continuation of high school. And I met a professor here that totally transformed my life. And I wanted to do the same thing he had done. Um, we're still lifelong friends. He's 92 and I have lunch with him uh, twice a month. Um, but that started me down my path for going and getting a, a master's, which I got at Wake Forest. And then I went and got my doctorate at Loyola University and then started the faculty uh, ranks. I started my first teaching job was at Eastern Connecticut State in the University of Connecticut. And then I went to uh, Centenary College in Hackettstown, uh, uh, which is now Centenary University. Um, became Got asked to go into administration there as uh, the provost. I said to the president, uh, when he asked what I thought of administration, I said, I think you guys are okay, but you wear funny suits. Um, he said, what about you becoming one of the funny suits? And I had actually never thought about that, but I did the typical faculty line. I'll do that for three years and then I'll go back to the faculty. That was 2003. So look, look how good I am at what I say I'm going to do. Um, but then I started thinking that if I really, if I really wanted to make an impact in higher ed and I was going to be in this kind of administrative role, I'd like to be at my alma mater of all places. So uh, that started my plotting uh, for the takeover of, of Moravian. And uh, I then get, was fortunate enough uh, to meet David and to meet Tracy Fitzsimmons. And when she moved into the president's job at Shenandoah, I went down there to be uh, her senior vice president, vice president of academic affairs for five years, waiting for the job to open at Moravian. And then I applied for the job, and I've been at Moravian for five years. Uh, for five years, for nine years. <laughs> just it just seems like five. Yeah, yeah, well, just, or, 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 or twenty-five. Yeah. Present. Yeah. Ab- absolutely. And, and Brian, what what was your academic field uh, that that you? So I'm a I'm a medievalist by training, uh, primarily Chaucer. Uh, I do the history of medicine and its relationship to literature are the research areas that I, I work on. And David, how about yourself? Well, so I um, started my academic journey at Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas. And then uh, from there, uh, went on to get my Master of Divinity at uh, Emory University. And while at Emory, I started working uh, as a student and then later as a staff member in the advancement area. So I kind of grew up through the advancement 
ranks in higher education and was on staff at uh, Candle School Theology for a year and then Oxford College of Emory University for five and a half years before becoming a vice president for advancement at Wesleyan College and then at LaGrange College and then became the president of uh, another centenary, Centenary College of Louisiana, and uh, was there um, and really at the urging of one of my uh, mentors who had been the who had hired me three different times as a student at Emory, as uh, the director of development at Oxford College, and as vice president for advancement at LaGrange College, Stuart Gully, who's now the president of um, Woodward Academy in uh, Atlanta. And somewhere along the line there, uh, Brian and I were able to meet by virtue of uh, the CIC Lilly-funded uh, President as Vocation program. And so that's when our relationship uh, really took root and uh, Brian and Tracy Fitzsimmons and I uh, just kind of formed a, a friendship that has lasted uh, all those years. That's great. And uh, maybe for context for folks, it would be helpful to just share a little about the the, the details, the history of your institution. So, so Brian, I, I think many people wouldn't know that Moravian was the, the sixth oldest college in the U.S. Could, could you tell us a little bit about its founding and history? And I was curious, uh, for a religious order to found a college so early in the U.S.'s history, that, that the seminary came much later, which is often the, the reverse path. So maybe just to, to, to explain that. So uh, the Moravians, the central tenant to the Moravians is education. Uh, and when the Moravians left Germany, uh, they, they, they called themselves the brethren. Uh, but the people who they spoke to said, oh, those are those people from Moravia. And so they became the Moravians then. Um, when they arrived at a nobleman's estate called Zinzendorf, uh, who then brought them from Herrenhut, Germany, to uh, Pennsylvania, and they looked around for some areas to settle to create a religious community, eventually settling on Bethlehem. They named Bethlehem on Christmas Eve, 1741. And uh, within six months, they, he, his daughter, Benigna von Zinzendorf, was asked to start the first school for girls. Um, the Moravians uh, believed in education, and they believed in educating the women first uh, because they were the first educators of the children. Uh, so it was pretty radical idea in 1742 to start this. And she took 24 girls uh, and the school moved around from Philadelphia to Germantown back to Bethlehem again, where it, it finally settled. Six months after they started the women's school, they started the men's school. Um, and that existed in Nazareth and then moved around for a while. And eventually, uh, moved into Bethlehem, and the, those schools existed till 1953, separate, uh, a mile apart. And in 1953, with the GI Bill and everything going on, women's schools were struggling, and it was going bankrupt. And the our first merger uh, that occurred was the merging of the men's and the women's college into the first 
coeducational college of the Lehigh Valley. Uh, people don't realize this, but Lehigh did not start accepting women until the 70s and 80s. Same with Lafayette and Muhlenberg. Cedar Crest was a women's college. Um, DeSales hadn't been founded yet. So the, there were very few co-educational options for uh, students. And so Moravian was a leader in that at that time. So it has a, um, its founder, its educational founder is uh, the Bishop John Amos Comenius, who's considered the father of modern education. And um, that's central to everything we do is about his uh, focus on equity and education being worthy of all. And when when Moravian, you use the term school, was it a combination of what we would think of as as K through 12 and higher ed from the start? Or, yeah, or? from the start it was. Um, so when the so our sister college, which is Salem College, which is the uh, longest and continuous single-sex school, it still has an academy attached to it, uh, K through 12. When the merge happened, uh, the president severed the K through 12 component onto its own. So it's Moravian Academy, but it was tied to the first school that it's always tied to the first school that was founded by the Moravians. So it was tied to the women's college as a K through 12 and then college component. Um, and was that the first college for women in the U.S.? Because I know most of the earliest were, were men, male only, right? Yes, it's the first to educate women. It's the first residential school for women. Um, the other one is Linden Hall. Uh, which never evolved into a college, but is also a Moravian uh, establishment out in Lidditz. Um, th that still continues as a K through 12 uh, component. Great. And and wh how where where in that history did the seminary piece come in, and and why the decision to found that, and how did that relate to the college? So um, the seminary piece happened in the early 19th century. Uh, where there was a need to train ministers for the Moravian faith. And uh, that became a component of Moravian College, uh, the seminary being added. The original name of uh, the women's school was the Bethlehem Female Seminary, but they that phrase seminary isn't what we think of as a seminary. Uh, they were... They were receiving a um, complete education, uh, math, science, uh, history, English uh, that, that they were getting in those early phases. When we officially founded the Moravian Theological Seminary was primarily a desire to um, be able to prepare and train Moravian ministers for service. David, you, you had had a successful tenure as, as a president at Centenary and then set up your own consulting firm. So what was it that led you to come back to serve as the, the interim president at, at Lancaster? Yeah, it was an interesting uh, time in Lancaster's history. And I, you know, I, I mentioned the one year of formal administrative experience that I had theological education as a recruiter for Candler School of Theology. Um, and so, you know, I found about 
I don't know, maybe about 85% overlap between uh, running a small college and running a small seminary. Uh, the Having the graduate focus uh, specialty uh, orientation of a theological school is different than, than running a, a more comprehensive liberal arts college, but it, it really um, did have a lot of similarities. The, the seminary was in um, a time of transition and they were, you know, moving from uh, one leader uh, who had been there for uh, a number of years. And they were at that, at that time in search for a new leader and just wanted a, an interim to come in and help bridge the tenures of the two uh, presidents before they moved on to the next chapter. And for me, the motivating factor was the importance of um, mainline Protestant theological education uh, in the country and uh, the the stress that that particular sector is under right now and, and wanting to uh, find a way to help strengthen that sector by helping to strengthen this particular institution within that sector. And, and when you uh, accepted the position, did you have in discussions with the board, did you have a sense that they were looking for a partner as well as a future president or how, how, how was the opportunity framed to you? Yeah, the main the main goal was really to, to bridge between two presidencies and uh, to find a way. Um, there were some some needs for financial sustainability that needed to be addressed. Um, and I think that the over the previous five years, uh, the board and the faculty and the administration had considered a number of options and were looking for the right uh, path forward uh, for the institution, one that would ensure that its mission would survive and thrive um, as, as the economic challenges that are facing all of higher education were confronting uh, this school in, in Lancaster. Uh, and, you know, on the table had been the possibility of, of mergers, and uh, they had seen a number of other institutions uh, in Pennsylvania and, and other places that had uh, really been considering and going through those types of consolidations uh, at the time. And so there was, you know, there's some good data and some bad data out there. And they, they were really trying to figure out, you know, whether or not that was the right uh, opportunity um to consider or not, or if there was some other way to really uh, put a, a really positive path forward for the institution uh, going forward. So I think they were open to that possibility, but it wasn't uh, on the top of the agenda when I got there. And had they got as far as talking with other institutions, do you know, or or was that just in the, let's look at all the models? Because obviously there's been a lot of this out there, particularly in the seminary space, right? I think of all of higher ed, that's where we've seen the, the greatest number of, of partnerships and consolidation. They hadn't recently talked about that in, in, in any kind of uh, concerted way where they, were, they weren't pursuing any uh, particular partnerships at the time that I uh, got there. Uh, we, we did start asking that question pretty actively um, not long after I got there, but the, um, I think the, the, preferred model would have been if we could have um, charted a path that for uh, sustainability that would allow Lancaster to carry on as it always had. So you you have both mentioned in your intros that you'd known each other, you'd had a chance through CIC to get to know each other. Can you tell how, how did the first discussions of this come up and, and how did how, t- tell us how that sort of evolved? Well, I, I think 
uh, it's really important. Uh, the relationship that Brian and I had, uh, you know, it, it's kind of fun and funny to, to think about how it evolved, but really I think that the pre-existing trust that he and I had for one another was essential to the whole conversation, um, that we were able to have, uh, pretty frankly and pretty bluntly right up front. And just, um, you know, as I was, you know, we were, it was during the, the height of lockdowns in during the pandemic. And, you know, for the first time I was living, you know, about an hour away from a good friend of mine and I couldn't go see him. (laughs) And so we did connect on the phone, uh, and just kind of exchange experiences. And one of the times while we were, uh, chatting, you know, I, I broached this possibility uh, with uh, with Brian to see if it's something that uh, he might consider. And I said that they hadn't considered uh, merging recently, but I, I I found out after talking with Brian that this wasn't the first time that uh, Moravian had talked with uh, Lancaster about this this possibility. And so was really pleasantly surprised to find out not only was he open to further conversations, but that he had. Uh, thought through some of this before. So Brian, and, uh, would, yeah, please. I would also, I, I, because of the trust uh, and the friendship, David was actually able to slow me down. Uh, I can remember in the phone conversation, because I, I had been to his campus previously before the, before the pandemic, and I had a, um, a plan in my mind and so I started with the plan and halfway through the plan, he stopped me and he said, slow down. I need you to start thinking about this. And, you know, I think if he wasn't my friend, you know, the hackles would have gone up and the, you know, who are you to tell me what I should be thinking? Um, but, you know, because he was my friend, I, I reflected on what he was saying. And, and it was basically instead of my plan that, you know, maybe we have to consolidate uh, Lancaster into our into our seminary back in Bethlehem. There's an opportunity for Moravian to expand out as a learning center into another vibrant city and further extend the university's mission as well as supporting theological education. And I hadn't I hadn't thought about that, but in my past. David knew that in my past career, I had done that for Centenary in multiple places. And so he was pulling on that experience, which I I hadn't even thought about. And, you know, that's also new for Moravian. Moravian's not, you know, no one remembers actually merging the women's college into, but at some point that occurred, right? And we had this new location. Now we have a new location 70 miles away. So this is all new. but I hadn't brought in any of that expertise into my thought process at all until David literally said, slow down, think about this. And, and so um, that was, that was advantageous for, for both institutions. And Brian, the model you had in your mind, um, had you looked at uh, other institutional, other seminary mergers or other things in terms of how you thought it might work? And and were you part of those earlier discussions with with Lancaster or that preceded you? Yeah, um, primarily I had been relying on the dean that was here in the seminary at the time. And, you know, this was 
you know, I, I can't even describe it as as a, a rough draft. We we had driven down, been invited down to uh, Lancaster to see the seminary and talk to the president, and we really kind of came up with a game plan on the car ride down, uh, and then we came back and the pandemic hit and. You know, we, we had other things to attend to, and it wasn't until you know David called that we we had um, we hadn't even broached it again as a as a concept. Right, and and David, given that you had sort of just taken this position, obviously it was a, a in the midst of a pandemic and and a relocation. What was it that led you, given that that wasn't sort of top of mind for for the board when you came? What was it that led you to the decision that this was this was probably the the best route for the the long term financial sustainability of the institute? Well, I'd had several conversations with uh, the faculty and with the board about the the options that were ahead of us, and and frankly, the faculty had given a lot of thought to uh, the possibility of of merger, um, and they had seen some things that they thought had worked well, and some things that they didn't think would work so well, and uh, had actually asked them to. Uh, tell me, you know, what, what are the factors that would cause you to say this would be a, a good thing for the seminary if we were to get in, into conversations like this? And what would be the things that would, you know, make, make you judge that this wasn't uh, a successful uh, combination? And uh, they were really frank and candid and, 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 fr- and they'd really done a lot of research and, and get a lot of thought to that, that possibility. And I, I told them, I said, this it's possible that I will get into these conversations with another institution and I will be the only one who knows about it. And I'm the newest person in this community who knows the least about it. Uh, so tell me what you want me to know. Tell me what, you know, what are your, what are your non-starters before I get into those, those uh, conversations. And so I felt like that the faculty primarily, but also the, the board and, and uh, our senior administration, particularly our CFO, Elizabeth Bennett, had really given some careful thought to how a merger could work and how we could um, make that work. And so once I found out that it wasn't just kind of a reactionary no from those three critical groups, uh, and there was some, some studied thought to how it could possibly be positive for the institution, uh, it really encouraged me to pursue those those conversations a little bit more forthrightly. And David, could you share sort of the highlights of, of that work that they had done? What were the kind of key things that they had learned in studying it and criteria, the things they were looking for in a potential partnership? Yeah, so uh, one, of, one of the things was just thinking about the continuity of the mission of the institution. And I think that the big uh, rephrasing that I, I came up with uh, after just trying to describe the attitude shift that I saw amongst the faculty first, and then also the board was moving from the idea of being stewards of the institution to being stewards of the mission and to really give giving some thought into what it meant for the mission of Lancaster Theological Seminary uh, to live uh, forward. And Lancaster had, had been in Carlisle and Mercersburg and different parts of Pennsylvania been in Lancaster for a long time, but you know, the, the institutional form has changed a good bit since 1825 
and the mission has lived on. And so um, being able to identify what were the, the visible elements of the mission that would, would indicate that this was uh, moving forward in the way that it, it had been since 1825. And some of those are, are things that you, you might, um, you know, take, you know, for granted as, as being things that people would want to hold on to, but keeping the name Lancaster Theological Seminary associated uh, with the seminary, uh, keeping the location as long as it was financially feasible for Moravian to do so, uh, retaining the uh, faculty. And uh, we had one faculty member who was not, um, who was in the tenure process and allowing her to complete the tenure process under the rules that she entered in was, was important to them. Um, making sure that there was a good spirit about, of an ecumenical fit. If we weren't going to, it was not likely that we were going to combine with another UCC United church of Christ institution. So we wanted there to be a theological compatibility, uh, between the two denominations. Um, in fact, that became uh, a really rich part of the conversation. I think as we went, forward with uh, Moravian. But those were some of the considerations that the, the faculty had raised. The, the board, of course, was interested in gaining, and, and the CFO was interested in gaining scale. So we couldn't um, scale up and cover some of the services that we needed to cover uh, as an institution, given our uh, current enrollment, enrollment trajectories and budget. And we so we were maintaining a, a, a rather... Um, beautiful old campus, uh, and we we needed uh, more scale in order to be able to do that in a responsible and, and thoughtful way going forward. So being able to combine with an institution that had the scale and a shared mission was, I think, crucial to all groups involved. And how, how many students were you at this time when you were looking at it? I'm, I'm, I can't I can't answer that specific question um, right at that point in time. But, but it was a, I think it was a few hundred, right? I mean, it's right, yeah. part of the challenge of running a, 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 a whole campus and institution at that scale was, was, was part of what you were. Yeah, it was, it was a few hundred. It, it yeah. just wasn't the way it had been in the seventies and eighties when it was primarily a residential campus. We had shifted to mostly a, a commuter, campus, a few residential students, and uh, our fastest growing program was actually a weekend program uh, where students would come in from um, Maryland, other parts of Pennsylvania, and uh, do intensive work during the weekend and then some remote work during the week. My, my memory of for both Moravian Seminary and uh, LTS was before the pandemic, we, we were, LTS was about double the Moravian seminary size. So we were at about 60 students. Um, and it, it was interesting. We have twice the endowment that LTS has. They had twice the students that we have. We had the same number of faculty. So it was, it, it was interesting. Um, and as a historical side note, which is kind of funny, um, Zinzendorf had an idea that uh, people would eventually see the light and there would be a unification of uh, Catholics and Protestants. 
And then when he came, when that didn't happen, and he came to the to the United States before it was the United States, he believed that people would see the light and there would be a unification of the German evangelical churches. He ran into this guy called Muhlenberg, uh, and that ended that dream. So the the combination with uh, with LTS, uh, one of our uh, scholars said, well, it just took Zinzendorf 280 years for it actually to happen. <laughs> so. Speaking of mission fit, right. So, so right. Brian, you, you, you mentioned that for you, the the geographic expansion was not part of the original vision. So given that you had a small seminary already, what, what was the, what was, what was it in your mind that led, led to thinking about, you know, focus on this effort? So um, it's serving a market. Uh, uh, Lancaster is the second fastest growing market in Pennsylvania uh, next to um, the Lehigh Valley. And so there lots of industry, lots of um, uh, lots of ability to do graduate and adult degree completion programs. Um, and LTS was already in that model, uh, as as David said, of of kind of people who are going either commuting in to do this work or coming at night. Um, that is an opportunity for us to expand our, our mission. Um, a very large Moravian uh, enclave is Lidditz, which is not very far uh, from the campus. So that added us uh, extension for the seminary to be able to reach a broader Moravian community down in that area of Pennsylvania. Um, for the benefits to the Moravian seminary side, LTS had two degrees that we didn't have, one being a doctorate degree, um, so that we were able to extend their mission up into uh, northeast Pennsylvania, which gets us up into Jersey and New York. Uh, so there were many, I'm very thankful David slowed me down, because there were many benefits to this combination for both seminaries and the larger health of, of the university. Um, and we continue to serve a market that is underserved in the adult degree completion and graduate market. And as part of the 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 bringing together of, of the institutions, have you also extended, Brian, some of the non-seminary offerings of Moravian to the LTS campus? So some of your other offerings? Yes. So that's the start this summer. Uh, the first cohorts of um, secular, for lack of a better term, the, the Moravian University uh, components happen this fall, and we're enrolling students right now in those components. We're also uh, right across the street from FNM, and uh, FNM is committed to undergraduate education exclusively. So we, we're able to tap into that market who then also wants to get graduates. Uh, degrees while remaining in that location. Um, so there, there's lots of synergies that can happen. Uh, most people have to leave the city to go out to Millersville or um, Elizabethtown to, to receive that uh, graduate education or adult degree completion. 
Um, so we're hoping to be more convenient for them and serve them in the in their city. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so could you talk us a little through from that initial conversation, uh, which obviously went went well, what, what what did the timeline look like and the next steps to actually making this this happen? Yeah, I think it I think it went relatively quickly as these things go. So I think Brian and I had our first conversation in November or December, and then we had a, a definitive agreement signed by June. Uh, the following June. And so between that first conversation, the definitive agreement, there were a lot of conversations that had taken place, but the first was really working toward, um, you know, an ability to, to announce publicly that we were actually in conversation with each other. And so that required us to commit in writing to uh, what we wanted to see from each institution and to make sure that we had a, a general sense of the, the terms uh, that would lay the foundation for the more specific negotiations uh, later. And so that required uh, more internal conversations for me with the board and with the uh, faculty and with the administration, particularly my CFO, uh, Elizabeth uh, Bennett. And we uh, worked back and forth with our counterparts at Moravian to try to arrive at that that general sketch of an outline of of what would what a successful agreement might look like. Brian, yeah, how about my from memory? Your... My, my memory is uh, David leading the statement about non negotiables, uh, which I thought was really good. I, the two drivers were David's statements of let's get let's get the non negotiables out so that we as quickly as possible we can see if this doesn't work. Um, and so, uh, you know, LTS laid out their non-negotiables. We laid out our non-negotiables and it was like, okay, we, we seem to be able to make these work. Um, the other thing was our advice from our legal counsel who had done a number of, uh, mergers in the Pennsylvania system. Um, his advice was to act quickly, the longer you uh, let this delay the the more people get cold feet and um and the, the more resistance to change you have so uh, you know we, we we both had the time impetus and um in making sure that that we could we could absorb the non-negotiables uh, and preserve both cultures. And did you get any pushback from your boards or key folks that, you know, this is a big thing to take on at any time, but to do it in the midst of a pandemic, was that helpful? Was it uh, giving urgency or was it people saying, you know, you're, you, we've got a public health crisis and, and you want to do this? So. Sure, there were questions about certain people's sanity uh, on doing this. Um, it, it was a big deal for the Moravians. Um, the, the Moravians see the university as uh, their gift to the secular world of education, but they see their seminary as their seminary. It, it's ecumenical in construct, but we're so small as you know, as compared to the Methodists. Um, that they have to manage their seminary and make sure that the education is being done to their. So we had, we had to, um, 
we had to have an emergency synod meeting to have this voted through. And just to give you an idea, in the 300 plus years that the Moravians have existed, this was the first emergency synod meeting ever. Um, so, uh, so either that shows that there's not a whole lot of change in the Moravian faith or what, but uh, we had an emergency synod meeting and it was voted unanimously to proceed with the um, combination. But so there were a lot of other hurdles uh, to jump through that people might not have realized had to occur. And in, in talking with others from the seminary world who've looked at different combinations, they've mentioned that sometimes uh, actually it can be most difficult if uh, two institutions of very similar denominations and faiths are coming together because within that there are always differences in theology or, or, or different perspectives. You're sort of a hybrid in that Moravian had both a different faith seminary and a secular institution. As you brought that together, David, you alluded to the fact that some, some of the things on the sort of the theological side have been among the more interesting developments. Can you talk about that aspect of the combination? Sure. And I do. And I do think that's also interesting difference between the institution that I was leading and the institution that Brian was leading, because he had both the, the to use his term, the secular and, and the, the seminary world. And I just had the seminary world in, in that sense. But my faculty were particularly intrigued by um, the, the ecumenical relationship with the Moravian church. And of course they were experts and scholars of the, the twists and the turns that that had taken over the, over the centuries. And, you know, the Moravians and United Church of Christ are not in full communion with one another. And so, which is an interesting observation. I've been committed to ecumenism my entire uh, professional life. And, and I, uh, was intrigued by the possibility that this would at least uh, inspire some conversations uh, between the two denominations. And if the seminaries could work out the practicality of educating uh, students and theologians and, and pastors together, that that might set the table for uh, a conversation between the two denominations uh, now or down the road some at some point. So uh, I, I just, it was interesting to see the faculty light up around the, the intellectual and the spiritual uh, possibilities that this, this very practical uh, conversation was, was leading into. And as you were looking at the different models, did you visit any other institutions that had done something similar? Did you do any kind of benchmarking or thinking about just which way we want to put the two together? We had pretty good counsel, I think, on both sides of the table in terms of our um, attorneys and the uh, exposure that they had th uh, to that world. I also work uh, with uh, AGB as a consultant and so have a a pretty broad um, exposure to institutions that are pursuing different models. I'm not sure that there's any one pattern that we followed here. I think we uh, developed what was right for Moravian and, and LTS, and we probably more, more often than not uh, were given examples of what not to do, and we're trying to avoid getting into those situations more than necessarily following a 
an affirmative path of what to do. What, what do you think about that, Brian? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. We, we kind of knew what we didn't want. Like uh, we, we were trying to avoid, um, you know, we're, we've, we've been, I think we've been really trying to avoid the fact that the university is, is a behemoth in comparison to a standalone seminary and not to hopefully not to have it feel that way. Um, you know, one of the things that was a non-negotiable from David was that we, we, we retained an open and affirming uh, seminary. And, you know, when he first said that to me, I was like, of course, we're Moravian, we're, we're open and affirming. And, and I, I learned, um, and most recently, this has happened again, that th- there's open and affirming, and there's open and affirming, and there, and LTS is, is further down the road than we are, and we would like to be there with them. So, so we're learning from them, uh, particularly about equity and diversity and inclusion. And we just had a, a meeting, a retreat down there, um, where I met with the the one of the trustees who's leading this. And one of the things that came out of this is that for Moravian, we use the seminary as a test bed for technology. Um, the the faculty have been cutting edge for decades in doing online education to the southern province and to Tanzania and other places. So when we when we're working on online education, we bring it to the seminary. Those six faculty have experience in it. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. We get to re revamp it, and we started realizing we can do this with equity, diversity, and inclusion down at LTS and and improve the university's understanding and programming and abilities to do this because the LTS faculty are so, this is such a desire of theirs that they'll want to help get it right before we roll it out to a larger entity. So there's a lot we're all learning from each other through this entire process that will make our complete institutions stronger at the end of the day. And and is the ultimate vision for this to have one seminary that serves both or to have two that share res- how closely or not are are the seminaries going to operate? So um you could ask me this tomorrow and it might be a different answer but right now uh we are pondering a school of theology with two separate seminaries that uh, share curriculum but meet different ends at times. Um, and then the university uses that campus as one would, um, uh, you know, Mill States doesn't like the term branch campus, but for people that's kind of understanding that there's this other campus. Learning center is what Middle States likes to hear. Um, but this would be a center for graduate and adult degree completion down in that area out of the university's uh, offerings. Um, some of the things that we've already been talking about is that maybe a certificate, an MBA certificate for theologians would be very useful as they go into churches. And um, we're just starting our school of uh, behavioral health. 
So how do we bring that down to LTS, both for chaplaincy and for social work and PsyD and, and everything else? So there, there's a, a number of opportunities, but right now we're seeing two, um, at least two seminaries that have a different feel, if that makes sense, but share resources um, and have... Um, one one um, vice president that oversees both, and and would that include potential like you would offer a course, particularly obviously where it's online, where students yep. from both could be in the same same. Yes, we're we're looking at telecommuting all of our classrooms at both seminaries. Uh, so that a faculty member may be in Bethlehem, a faculty member may be down in Lancaster, um, that vice versa, but they're, they're dealing with two sets of classes. Right. And that's another yeah, please. thing that was really exciting about walking Brian around the, the Lancaster campus, because I knew of Brian's history with uh, technological upgrades at uh, Centenary in Shenandoah and was excited to just kind of watch his vision um, unfold for how he could connect the two campuses uh, technologically and, and bring them even closer together than they seem to be now, 70 miles. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you mentioned the, you know, the fairly rapid timeline that you were able to, to, to put these pieces together. At what stage did you bring the two boards or at least portions of the boards together to uh, determine if this was going to work? My memory is, yeah, my memory is right after we got through the non-negotiables. I mean, I brought my, I remember bringing members of my board, my board chair uh, and um, key stakeholders from, from my board to David with his board. Um, And then once we got through the non-negotiables and we had, uh, we had signed the non-disclosure forms and we started um, showing each other, uh, you know, the, the dirty laundry of the books and everything else that, that, you know, so we had to come up to an idea, does this make sense? Um, I think that was only, my memory is that was like two months, maybe. Uh, and then we were, we were bringing it to the boards for vote. And as I said, we had to go, the extra step was getting the synod together, which um, was all the, uh, all the members who are voting members of the Northern province of the Moravian faith. So it was 150 some members uh, that had to get together for this. You know, that you mentioned the pandemic earlier. It's, I think uh, actually both schools operating um, with Zoom more than we had pre-pandemic facilitated a lot of these conversations because it didn't seem contrived to hold a video conference, you know, next week at five, you know, we could, you know, do that as opposed to trying to get together everybody in the same room, you know, it was just sort of business as usual, be able to do this. So I actually think that probably accelerated some of these conversations and our boards could, you know, to the extent that uh, you know, video conferencing allows that, that feel, you know, meet face to face and, and speak with one another. And then, you know, we also created these 
teams that that work to begin to map out the transition and to answer specific questions about uh, different areas of the operation. And, and one of the one of the, th- the lessons I guess I can share from my end is, you know, many of these combinations or mergers are asymmetric, and so uh, Moravian has a much larger staff. Uh, than than we do we, we did and so uh, Brian would say well my head of HR wants to meet with your head of HR I say okay that's my CFO you know <laughs> my head of facilities wants to meet with your head of facilities I say well that's my CFO <laughs> my, my business my controller wants to meet with your controller well that's my CFO <laughs> and so we have one person to try to relate to all of the these different functions and um, you know trying to get uh, Moravian the information they needed to make a uh, informed decision uh, was was uh, you know Im- important, but it was is also something I, I hadn't anticipated in uh, before we got into that conversation about how how much we would need to be able to produce from one department for multiple departments at Moravian. And and Brian, for for you, did was there a? Um, did, I assume you would have had to go through a pretty. You mentioned opening the, you know, the books for both sides, a, a, a pretty high degree of confidence to your to your board that you were not taking on some risk or liabilities that that could negatively impact the university. How did you sort of have confidence that this was going to be additive over, over the? Well, uh, two two components. Um, but one was that there was great leadership at Lancaster for a long time. Um, even though there's been struggles, uh, there was no debt, which which made this very attractive, that we were not taking on um, $40 million worth of debt. Uh, there was deferred maintenance, but as I say, I, I'm from I have deferred campus, maintenance since 1742. Yeah. <laughs> yes, um, so uh, and one of the the one of the drivers is you know we're looking at you know 2026 or you know whenever the demographic cliff is actually going to come whether the pandemic has changed that or not but whatever expansion is one of the ways to solve that issue. You're you're looking at you know, Northeastern now has 10 branch campuses or 10, 10 other locations. Um, the, the, the options, I think, are shrink and become smaller and more sustainable uh, if you have a sizable endowment that will let you do that or uh, expand and become more useful and more relevant. Um, this was seen, my board has been into the expansion model. This was a new expansion model. I do, I do have to bring up the, the components um, that, that David brought up. Um, this has been a culture change on both sides. Like for, so the Moravian culture changes. Now we got a, another campus that we have to think about. Um, the culture change at LTS is now they're an embedded seminary, which has blessings and curses. So, you know, we have our facilities director going there who's a trained architect and engineer, which they've never had before, or our CIO or the vice president of development. They couldn't afford the kind of people that the university can bring, but they also don't have a human being called the president sitting in their office like they used to have. And so 
there there's positives and negatives to both sides of this and so they're learning to deal with the fact that um they just can't call up someone and have their their payroll changed like so there, there's a there's a bureaucracy to the moravian enterprise yeah that wasn't there before um but there's also expertise that wasn't there before so it's a it's a blessing and a curse um and and so when we when we got through all the due diligence and that the institution wanted to expand, uh, the city is strong and vibrant and growing. Uh, it made all the sense in the world to to see if we could pull this off. And you you mentioned that you know you you had had those initial discussions. You brought the board together, and I think it was that spring um, that that you made the public announcement of of your intent. Before that. Who had you consulted with externally to make sure that there were not going to be any Im- impediments? So you've referenced middle states, Brian. Um, uh, you know, I assume you had state regulators, middle states. What was there? So uh, a- ATS, middle states, uh, Department of Education, PA. Uh, we're we're right now engaged with the Department of Education, the federal government. Um, and they all don't speak the same language. Uh, and, and so, and, and they often have um, opposing regulations, which makes it very challenging. Uh, for instance, our understanding of the PA Department of Education is that if you call it an acquisition or a merger, you become a different enterprise, and then you can't offer degrees for two years. So, but the federal government doesn't see it the same way. Uh, so your Title IV funds are at risk for the seminary, um, which are, you know, important to the, to the institution. Um, and then, you know, this just recently happened that uh, middle states, these, these are substantive changes for both institutions. And so we we had to decide, uh, which we recently did, that it would be best to surrender to voluntarily surrender LTS's middle states accreditation because it doesn't need it. It's covered by ATS. It pre- it um, prevents one more substantive change from happening, which takes pressure off staff. Uh, and that when the when the Department of Education from Pennsylvania finally blesses the combination, which we hope to be in November, LTS will be under the umbrella of the Moravian Middle States um, accreditation. So, you know, it's all these sorts of things that you, David and I had no idea the quagmire you're getting into when you're doing this. Mm-hmm. And. And you had mentioned at the start that some of the lessons you learned were what not to do, what you were trying to avoid. Uh, as you've gone through this process, are there key lessons you'd have for other institutions as they think about, you know, the potential benefits of some form of combination, things to think about up front or or, or ways to approach it that you, you think help make it successful? Uh, so I'm sure that Brian's got more uh, retrospective insight than I do. Um, as, as he said, you know, there are things that happened uh, after we signed the definitive agreement that kind of the, the details, but I, I, I do want to invite you and the listeners just to kind of reflect on Brian's generous spirit in the way that he's been describing 
um, the transaction all along. And I think that, that that he is embodying the way that Moravian was approaching this from the, the beginning. And that, that didn't have to be the case, right? Uh, there, there, it could have been more business-like, um, but you know, being open to the culture, being open to the history, being open to the personnel, um, he, he's really engaged a lot of the personnel that were there and given them even more responsibility than they had before and helped them with their own professional growth and development, um, respecting and honoring the uh, contracts that were in place, uh, not trying to come in and immediately, you know, change the the culture, but being sensitive to the fact that the process changes are difficult for uh, the folks at Lancaster to, to um, uh, adapt to. Uh, but, you know, they, they're working toward that. I, I just think that's an extraordinarily important, if intangible dimension of this whole thing uh, that there, there has to be a generous uh, spirit on on both sides to to making this work and on the Lancaster side really giving Moravian the benefit of the doubt and understanding that they uh, they want the same things that that we do and and trying to put aside uh, any kind of cynical reservations that you might have about um, how this could unfold uh, but it really does require uh, good actors all the way around. Conversation. I I appreciate everything that David has just said. Conversations the key um, on all sides, and none of this could have been hap- could have happened if the the faculty at the Lancaster Seminary hadn't been open to this idea. Um, and so I'm grateful for them, and because this is change. Uh, and, and most people aren't comfortable with change. Um, my, if I was going to give advice, um, the advice I would give is that you, you need good legal counsel, uh, uh, and people who have done this, uh, to advise you. Um, I think there's going to be more of this, especially since there's a lack of, uh, uh, regional geography to accreditation uh, now so that you can take your middle states accreditation and go anywhere in the country with it, right? So uh, places are going to be looking for ways that they can uh, maximize student revenue and lower staff costs. Most people will tell you at mergers, and this has been our experience here, that uh, all the uh, when you look at the books and, oh, I don't need this person, I don't need that person, and, and uh, I'm so much more in the black, you're not. Uh, you, you'll, need, you'll still need other people. And you know that's been the experience that uh, our initial business model, when, when you carve out, uh, you know, when, when I fired David, yeah, thanks and a lot. Take <laughs> you never reconsidered that one, did like you? One of, the, <laughs> one of the most good-humored firings I've come across. Um, you, you don't recoup all the money, right? Like you, you realize that you know. It, I guess it's it's we're nonprofits. We realize that we're going to have to. Um, we, we there there are services that need to be done. They now need to be filled by someone. That's another line. 
So you don't you don't save all the money you think you're going to save. It doesn't mean that the place can't operate in the in the black, and that's obviously the goal. Um, but almost everybody will tell you in a merger, you're not going to recoup everything you think you're going to recoup, and and that was true as as we looked at it. So, you know, if you're just breaking even, you're going to be in the red uh, <laughs> because because it's it's just not going to work out the way you think it is. Um, we had a sizable revenue surplus when we looked at um, the the change. So we're still in good shape. But if, if you're just breaking even, my suggestion would be not to do it unless there's other really important reasons to be doing it. So it, it, it's not that this you know, you said obviously you didn't come at this from a hard kind of I'm going to get this asset, strip the cost. But but it's not that it was particularly it wasn't additive to the bottom line from a cost savings perspective. But the hope is that the geographic expansion and the ability to access a, a different market is that this will give you a base for future growth there. Right. Yeah. And we're just starting that that storyline like that's that's just beginning now. Um, even even the curriculum of the two seminaries, you know, we want to buoy up both seminaries too. Um, that's just beginning. Uh, as you know, they 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 survived. We we had a new dean and vice president at at the Moravian Seminary. They they survived their first year together, um, and and it was successful. But it was too almost firewalled seminaries. Now the question is, okay, what do we want to build here at the seminary? At the same time, the university's saying, okay, what are we building at our new location? And so all of that's going to start, that story is going to start coming out starting in September as things start rolling out. And and you've both mentioned that one of the challenges of something like this is, is you know, ch- significant change is 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 not something that generally is embraced a- anywhere. H- how did you go about managing the introduction of this? It sounds like you had some key people, the faculty at LTS, who had been thinking about this and were on board, but for the for the staff at both institutions who might be worrying about job security for you know the the alumni of both places how did you sort of manage the that change management process once you once you did the public announcement or or if there was anything leading up to that oh, i'd say on our side you know one of the realizations i had was that you know no no merger happens that the president and the board don't think is a good idea <laughs> So um, the, the mergers, the mergers that get judged uh, are, you know, usually judged by the faculty or alumni, you know, the enduring constituencies of these institutions. And so, um, you know, one piece of advice, you know, is, is to start early with talking with the faculty and listen, you know, carefully to what the, the faculty deem is important. And, and for me, it was really as an interim, particularly, I could let them be my guide because I didn't. I didn't know the institution uh, as as well as as a longer serving president might might have known it, and so I think that was uh, really important on our side. But the faculty's um, uh, visible uh, openness to this this change, you know, 
that 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 buoyed the confidence of the students, the alumni, and the staff. Everybody, nobody was looking to me, you know, to see how I thought about it. They were looking to the professor that taught them ten years ago uh, to see how they what they thought about it. And I think that was really an important uh, piece of the change management. Uh, we did do town hall meetings again. Advantages and disadvantages of the pandemic, you know, all online. You could have people from broader geographic reaches because of that, but it wasn't as warm and personal uh, where you could get a, a feel for how, how people were interacting with the, with the news. And we, whenever there was, you know, going to be significant news, we tried to get in front of the students and the staff as quickly as possible. And then uh, the alumni as, uh, soon, soon thereafter. I, I give two pieces of advice if I could if I could rewind and do th- things over again. Um, one is to center myself that while I've had this conversation nine million times, um, certain stakeholders are hearing it for the first time, and so realizing that they're not with me yet, um, which I is is being a college president one hundred and one. Um, but there's such an emphasis on speed and everything else that's going on with this uh, that you forget at times that this stakeholder group um, has not heard this, and and they're they're you're you're going in um, they're uninformed. The other piece is that you need to give space uh, to the alums, particularly for grieving. Uh, the, 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 we, you know, uh, we entered, I can remember a, uh, first initial conversation, um, where we entered with a lot of energy and excitement and they were grieving and they called us out on it. Uh, and we, we had to stop reset and allow that space to occur. Um, we were excited about all the possibilities that this, uh, could happen, and we were running uh, 150 miles an hour, and and they just wanted to grieve about the loss of their seminary as they knew it. And um, I, I I wish I could do that meeting over again. You don't you don't get an opportunity to do that, but um, slowing down in certain areas would be helpful as as feedback. And. Just to that point on the grieving, Brian, and and David, you touched on this in terms of the, you know, when you got to LTS, making the shift in the mindset from thinking about the preservation and the continuation of the institution versus the mission. And I'm I'm conscious, because to me, for, for boards and as people who focus on this within higher ed, that seems to be... The, Many places, I think, are equating institution and independence with mission, which it c- could be, but it doesn't need to be. And if anything, it sounds like in the way you've done it, this may actually be a furtherance of the mission because of the potential benefits to the two faiths and extending you know, the impact you can have. H- have there been things you've done to try to bring about that shift in mindset more broadly? Um, for for the constituencies? Well, I I just started saying the phrase over and over again, stewards of the mission, and contrasting it with stewards of the institution, and uh, asking people to reflect on what is it that they truly value 
about the institution. And of course, there's a, a great deal of sentimental uh, connection. There's memories in the buildings, in the campus, you know, in, in some of the institutional forms, no doubt. But uh, at the what what happened w- within those facilities, what what happened uh, within the curriculum, what ha- you know was was what was really important. And so the the curriculum, the facilities, the staffing, uh, all that made the mission possible. And so thinking carefully about what's going to make the mission possible tomorrow is is really critical because you know. Especially, uh, we're glad that deferred maintenance was not a, a challenging topic for the sixth oldest uh, institution in the country, uh, but you know that that's that's a really crippling um, that's a really crippling liability for a lot of institutions, and uh, we could have we could have cared for just one major system failure, <laughs> and and lost the ability to support the mission. And uh, to have an institution with scale be able to come in there and absorb that kind of risk uh, is is uh, really important, and, and means that that mission can continue on. And again, to have someone with a generous or an institution with a generous spirit who's open to the mission of Lancaster Theological Seminary persisting uh, that that makes all the difference. Brian, since since um, uh last summer you you you've been wearing the two hats as presidents of both institutions H- how have you gone about kind of doing that are you dividing your time between the two campuses how are you sort of making LTS feel that you know you're fully their president as well as Marie so um, I think to some sometimes better sometimes worse Um we had a scheduling snafu, so graduations were at the exact same time, and I couldn't physically be in two places at once. Um, so hopefully that won't happen again uh, next year. Um, but the we just had a retreat uh, for the cabinet down uh, using the the LTS as an offsite, and then we were. Um, able to do some meetings with uh, people about key uh, key components. Um, so it is, um, I think it's growing uh, in, in both entities. You know, um, when, when I had learning sites in my other job, the president rarely ever showed up at the other learning sites. That was really the provost's job uh, to be showing up. Um, this is a different case and a different scenario. Um, so we, we also, um, you know, this is a personal note. Um, we, if you know about Bethlehem, you know about Music Fest, and I am ground zero for Music Fest. So my wife and I escaped to the president's house of LTS while Music Fest is happening uh, and spend time down there. So there are ways to make sure you're seen and you're down there and you're um, and people are able to um, contact you and you're getting connected. But it's a growing process. I, I mean, back to stakeholders, because I was just thinking this, you, you, you have to realize what's in it for them. So the students love the idea because they get all this new curriculum, these courses, you know, Moravian gives out MacBooks. When do we get our MacBooks and our iPads? All, all the benefits. 
faculty get new thought partners. You know, so now there's instead of a faculty of six, you got faculty of 12 um, that you, you now have thought partners with. But for the alumni, it's hard to say what the benefits are other than sustainability uh, for their institution. So as, as you think through this, those are considerations of really what's in it for, for the stakeholders of this institution and why would they want to do this? And, um, and how are you going, if you're uh, one of the, you know, presidents who's doing this, how are you going to think about your time and where you're going to spend it? And, you know, all of us know that we're only conspicuous by our absence. Um, and, and that becomes an important component that you got to take into effect. And Brian, you, you went really quick from that initial conversation to the, the, the agreement What's been occurring in the year since you, you mentioned you're hoping to have it finalized for November? What, what, are, what, are, what have been the key milestones since then that, that are, are still getting to that stage? It's right now we're in signature stage. So um, it, it has to get, um, don't take this as legal advice because I, I, I'm. I'm, I know enough to be dangerous right now, but essentially there's eight signatures that have to initially happen. And then there has to be this uh, public disclosure. Uh, and then if there's no uh, objections from the public about this, then it goes back to the eight signatures. We did this recently when we went from uh, college to university, went through the same process. Um, we're in that process right now, and we're just waiting for the Secretary of Education of Pennsylvania uh, to sign off on the the, the uh, combination that the two institutions can combine. Um, and then we would have right now we have um, I have three boards, essentially the Moravian Seminary Board, the Moravian University Board and the Lancaster Theological Seminary Board. And there's a kind of firewall between the LTS and the other two boards um, that is done for Department of Education, Pennsylvania Department of Education reasons. Um, so that we're... We're just waiting on the Department of Education right now, and and the belief is that by November we'll get uh, hopefully their approval, and then we'll move through the next step. And, and so after that approval, what's what's the next step? So the next step would be then officially combining um, having the School of Theology to uh, separate uh, seminaries one board uh, overseeing the seminaries and the School of Theology. Uh, so I would be reduced down uh, one one board. So, so what they're approving David's, now is... David's laughing because every president wants multiple boards. <laughs> <each>. <laughs> yeah. So, so what they're approving now is the is the official combination, but that, that ultimate structure would be in the next stage of the process. Correct. Um, we we this is not the structure we want to keep, um, and and trying to explain that to the different legal agencies is is 
is very time consuming and difficult. Uh, the federal government does not un- understand nor really care uh, about what you have to do at the state level. Um, they, they, they have their own set of rules, their own set of policies and procedures, and you may be in violation of them trying to do what you're trying to do with your state. Um, and so it's walking a very fine line because even, even in a small seminary, you, it's three quarters of a million dollars of title four funding. Um, you know, which, yeah, could the, could the, university absorb that yes would it rather not yes uh you know so you're trying to figure all that out and not not fall over a tripwire and while it appears from our perspective that this is occurring all the time from their perspective we're we're just a very small slice of their life and you have to realize that. So even though this has maybe happened for them, for that administrator, five times, it's only been five times. And now you add state variance in there. You know, it's, it's, you, we forget from thinking about where they're coming from. They're coming from a much different place than, than we are. Uh, and helping them, uh, understand what you're trying to accomplish is a full-time job really is it seems a shame because i mean if ultimately part of this is to offer greater assurance not not just greater educational offer but greater assurance that there's a, a longevity to the the you know, the degree programs and the mission of the institutions, that seems like you're being a good steward of public dollars, right? It's, it's not like this is a for-profit coming in and somehow, right? The whole higher, higher ed ecosystem is rather conservative and slow moving. And um, right now, institutions have to be able to be a little bit more nimble uh, than what our ecosystem will generally allow. Yeah, it's it's interesting though that I mean, Brian, you said you know we have to put ourselves in their place, but th- you know this was the first time you two had done this, right? That they are now seeing. I mean, there are dozens of these cases right around around the country, so you wouldn't think it was like you'd come to them with a totally new concept, right? But but it sounds like you're still having to sort of start from square one. Well, I and I generally think I I don't know my my thought is they're approaching this with um why are you doing this what are you trying to get around uh from from a almost a legalistic framework and you're approaching it from i'm just trying to you know preserve an institution and i'm trying to do a good thing and you know i i i think they're looking at what what rule did you violate and why 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 are you trying to get around and yeah, there's some good history of that. Look at the for profits, right? Um, and I originally thought, having sat on the NICU board, that a lot of this was about the for profits. But then, uh, you know, the the person we were working with, he's like, "This has nothing to do with what you think it has to do with." This this is, you know, we have these policies. We see you're. In, we think you're in violation with these. It's just very black and white. Yeah. Um, so. 
so David, you, you've now had two experiences as a former college president. Can, do you have any ad, kind of concluding advice on, on making that transition, how, how you've done that successfully and for folks as they think about their own career paths? Yeah, I think um, one of the things I've come to realize is all the uh, most difficult challenges that you face in the seat as a president are the ones that are most valuable to you um, later on as you are working with other institutions and other presidents, uh, either because they want to avoid some of those challenges that you had to face or want to know how to overcome some of those challenges that you have have seen before. And I think that's uh, important for college presidents to think about, you know, the the things that you worry most about, the things that give you the most trouble are also the deepest lessons that you'll take with you um, into your, into your, your next portion of your career. And so there were a number of things that um, I learned at Centenary that made it possible to move more quickly at Lancaster through a transition like this. Most of them were doing things differently, you know, things that I'd learned that I learned from my own mistakes and then learn uh, also from the experiences that I gained uh, that would just enable me to to do um, better in this particular role given this time period. And the other the other piece that I've learned, David, is, you know, it was really, really nice to know that my contract was only 365 days. You know, when you know that you're you have an end date. And the phrase that I came up with is uh, all presidents are interim. It's just nice to know <laughs> how long your contract is. <laughs> and uh, but that mindset is is important, I think, that when you, you do have that mindset that you are you're here just for a while. And there are constituencies and stakeholders who were here before and who will be here long after, and that you are in service uh, to them as much as you are to the mission, uh, that that's, that's an, a different perspective and an important one to, to hold on to. That's great. Brian, any, any final thoughts from you? Well, even though I tried to change the locks of the president's house, David still breaks in and takes pictures to get in. sitting in my living room. <laughs> so, you know. Um, so so change the locks that's the uh (laughs) change the lock uh you know i i don't think this could have uh actually happened the way it happened without the friendship that uh, david and i share um and it definitely couldn't happen as quickly um because um he was able to slow me down and think about things in a different way and um and the opportunities were significant for both institutions in, in a much richer um, uh, and and diverse way. Um, and and so that it's it's good for both institutions. Um, both institutions are going to be different than they were, but the missions aren't different. And and that is the key about. Uh, you know, we're here to serve our mission. Um, and, and unless no one wants our mission anymore, then then it's time to close up shop. But there's plenty of places that this mission is still needed, um, both at the university and at the seminary. So uh, this just makes it uh, more possible to do that. Great. 
Well, thank you both for taking the time. It's been really great uh, to have a chance to understand the journey you've been on, and and I really appreciate you sharing all the lessons from what you've gone through. So thank, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for bringing us together.